0: Hey, folks, and welcome to Learning to Serve, the podcast that explores deeper learning in Christian schools. I'm your host, Krista Wallace. Let's dive in. Today's guest is Dr. John Eckert from Baylor University. He is a professor of educational leadership, and he will be presenting on assessment and feedback at this year's CDL4. Let's listen in. That's awesome. Well, thanks for being on this podcast. Um, tell me, so you're at Baylor and what, what what is your role at Baylor and how long have you been there?
1: So this is my second year at Baylor. I was at Wheaton for 10 years before this, Wheaton College. Um, I am a professor of educational leadership, actually the Linda and Robert Koppel endowed chair for educational leadership. They gave a gift mm-hmm. a couple of years ago to support Christians in school leadership. And part of that gift was this endowed chair. So that was what drew me down here that we could do this work uh, at a larger scale for Christian leaders in whatever schools they're called to.
0: So you moved from Chicago to Waco.
1: I did. Yes. And I'd never been to Waco until the interview. I'd never been to Baylor. I'd never been to Waco. So I'd seen a lot of it on Fixer Upper, but I'd never uh, actually been down here. So yeah, it was, uh, that was March of 2019 was the first time I'd been to Waco. So yeah, oh. it's uh It's been good, but it's great. The weather from November to May, it's beautiful. I mean, it's like, it's cold today because it's only in the high fifties. Uh, so it's (laughs) pretty great from Chicago to Texas. You definitely get the better end of the stick for the winter down here. That's for sure.
0: That is for sure. I'm from Texas actually grew up about two hours from Waco in a community called Tyler. And then, uh, so from Tyler grew up there and then, uh, went to AM, Texas a which is where I met my husband. So spent a lot of years in Texas and it is, it is beautiful in the winter. It is awesome. It's not in the summer, it's hot.
1: <laughs> That's right. Well, we work with Grace Community School uh, at, yes. uh, in Tyler. So I've been to Tyler now multiple times and also never been there. But now I've been to Tyler, I think, four times in the last year and a half. So no love kidding. Tyler.
0: It's a beautiful um, area.
1: Grace is amazing. Jay Ferguson, do you know Jay? Oh, I know Jay. Yeah. Yes, and okay.
0: Carla, yeah. and uh, and their their pastor Doug Clark is actually a, a close friend of ours. So that's okay. That's fun.
1: Okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. great great people there for sure.
0: Yeah yeah. Well, tell us about this brand new book that you well when when was uh, leading together uh, teachers and administrators improving in student outcomes. When was this book published?
1: That was in 2018. So the research was really done in 2015, 2016, uh, a little more in 2017, but the book came out in in 2018. So it was a sabbatical project that actually got bumped back for the first book I ended up writing.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, And so I felt like I was writing, leading together for about three years um, because of the data collection because we went pretty deep into three schools schools—an urban suburban and rural high school Mm -hmm. to see how collective leadership plays out in real time and so that's those are the three case studies in the book and then it was built on a lot of research that mark smiley and i had done um, leading up to that research
0: so what was what was the motivation behind this book why did you write this book in particular
1: Well, I've now been in education for 25 years. So I taught for 12 years in uh, public schools outside of Chicago and Nashville. And then I was at the US Department of Ed in the Bush administration in the Obama administration. And then I was for 10 years, I was at Wheaton College. So I had the private public teacher preparation side teaching middle school science teaching intermediate grades what i had finally come to both in my work at i was at vanderbilt for my doctoral work right before i went to the u.s department of ed was that the best hope we have for education is for great educators to work together and spread their expertise to others because we can lament all of the issues, all of the family issues, the community issues, the societal issues that our students come to school with, but those students are our students. And so where can we make the most difference? Well, the research says the Greatest school level factor on student learning or teachers. The second greatest school level factor is the administrator. So mm-hmm. how do we get teachers and administrators doing that work together? So the argument that Mark Smiley and I were making in our research was that we need to be doing this work together and leadership should mm-hmm. be defined as work, not as a position, not as mm-hmm. a personality, uh, because once we start defining it as the work, it becomes less about who the leader is. And what the work is. Mm -hmm. And so then people step into the work, they're not stepping back and saying, hey, I don't think I'm the right person, or I don't have the authority or I don't have the position to do that. Mm -hmm. They just step in and do the work. And so we know in great schools, that's what happens anyway. Mm -hmm. So there are, you know, 20% of that staff are pushing forward the good work. And the the more effective the school is, the broader that work is spread. So how do we start to see that operationalize? And so instead of just theorizing it, we wanted to see it in practice. So we used some University of Chicago data to find some schools that had pretty strong working conditions. They had to be above average. And then we found an urban, suburban, and rural high school thinking that they are the most complex structurally type of school in the K-12 world and making the argument that it's not just based on whether you're suburban, urban, or rural that you can be successful. And so that was the impetus for the book.
0: Okay, so this was this all with public schools? Those uh, in that book
1: were all public schools, yes. Since then, We've been doing it. That's why we work with Grace. Uh, Mm -hmm. They're part of a network improvement community in Texas, where we started taking some of these collective leadership principles that we had tested in the research and found in public schools and said, hey, if if you can do this in public schools, shouldn't Christians be able to do this really well? (laughs) You can look to the Trinity. You can look to the way Jesus led. You can look (laughs) to so much scripture and say, hey, we should be good at this. And then if we have this bond in Christ, where we're all locking arms and doing this work to, as our pastor says, push back the darkness and spread light. Like, shouldn't we be doing this really well? So we, I made this pitch at the 2018 CESA conference where I was talking about the book and said, Hey, if you're interested in doing this, let's get schools together and let's do this for three years. And so Mm -hmm. Jay Ferguson, um, came up and he said, Hey, I'd love to do this. And so we started networking some schools. And so uh, he had a list of six. I'm still working with four of them. Three of them have stuck with each other through the whole three-year process. So uh, that's Preston Wood, Christian, Grace and the Woodlands uh, Christian Academy down outside of Houston. So those three schools we meet every month um, virtually and then we meet in person at least once a year. So that group is, is doing it. And so we're writing up results from that. And now at Baylor, we're doing this with hundreds of teachers and administrators. That's how all of our work is set up to have teachers and administrators doing this leadership work together.
0: So how do you how do you begin that process? I mean, what's what's the first step to getting teachers and administrators in working together collaboratively?
1: Well, that's a, that's been a, an interesting challenge. It has to be invitational. that People have to want to do it. This isn't a, something that can be forced because it's by definition, not top down. Right. But you have to have support from the top because you have to have a willingness of the administrator to step back and invite others in. Mm-hmm. So we try to help um, administrators see how this can make their job actually manageable, uh, the, the, the role of the school principal or head of school right now, with especially in COVID, but even before COVID, is unmanageable on your own. So how do you build up, pour into the people that you need to when you don't have time to just do that on the side? Well, do the work together create space to do the work. And that becomes the development. You don't have development experiences and then you do the work the school needs. Um, If leadership is work towards shared goals, then you get better work by doing that work together because you're developing leaders through doing the work. And so that's a pretty um, intuitive thing, I think, for a lot of leaders to think about. I think sometimes they think they're doing it, when they may not be quite there yet because when you do we have a survey tool that we use that we now have down to a the validated nice reliable survey that started as 166 items we've got it down to 34 it takes less than 10 minutes but oh, wow. You, When you break it down by administrators and teachers, the perceptions of the two are quite different, where the administrators think they're here, and this is public or private, schools, Christian or secular schools. The administrators think they're here, functioning at this higher level, and the, the teachers are saying, yeah, we're actually more like here, and so then you put that in front of them. And they have to actually code the qualitative responses. And they have to explain the differences in the seven constructs that we' say matter. And that's the way you kind of accelerate the work. Um, the last thing I'll say on that is we, we talk a lot about, this, this is the seventh grade science teacher in me um, talking about catalytic leadership. And so I think sometimes leaders hear that in this cheesy leadership ease for being the center of everything, but a catalyst, in, in science is, is something that accelerates a reaction that's already happening. It's not the focus at all of the reaction. It's what speeds it up. So in essence, the leader becomes the person coming alongside to speed up the good work that's already happening. So trying to get them to see how that works with the seven conditions, um, it becomes a lot more meaningful when they're doing hard work. And COVID's opened up a lot of opportunities for that because no one thinks they can do all the work on their own.
0: Well, and no one feels like an expert, right? This is new yeah. for everybody. And so it kind of levels yeah. the playing field. And sometimes your teachers are going to be more adept at that change than your administration.
1: Yep. Oh. Yeah, the first book I wrote was called The Novice Advantage, the uh, Benefit of Being New to Things. And I, I think um, COVID has made it clear we're all novices at this. I mean, <laughs> it's a the novel coronavirus has made us all novices.
0: I tell you. <laughs> My, my daughter is a first year teacher. She's teaching second and third grade at an expeditionary learning uh, Catholic school here in Denver, and they don't have a, a PE teacher. And so she has eight minute hits, uh, you know, high intensity interval training that she puts up on the board on video. And her kids are doing this twice a day in the morning and afternoon, just, just to get the wiggles out. <laughs> That's, awesome. That's great, babe. Keep it up. Keep it up. Um, in your, you, you talk about authentic assessment. Mm-hmm. Can you explain a little bit about what is authentic as- assessment? How is that different from traditional? And then um, how does that connect with Christian deeper learning desire to see students produce real work that meets real needs for real people? So tell me about yeah. authentic assessment.
1: So it fits really nicely with the Christian deeper learning ideas because it's what we want to get our students to. Uh, And so Mm -hmm. I use authentic assessment and performance tasks somewhat interchangeably, but I like to think about it as almost an apprenticeship where students, in order to be an apprentice, you have to be working with someone who has more knowledge and skill than you have. Mm -hmm. And so as teachers, it's our job to give students tasks that force them to think in our disciplines, think and do things that people that are in those disciplines do. Um, and we have to develop those skills with them. So they need a chance to show what they can do. And that's hard to do in a multiple choice test. Um, I certainly, the multiple choice tests have their place and are fine. But if that's where we stop, we aren't really getting to what they were created to be. So if you believe you're teaching image bearers of God and you stop at a multiple choice test, you're limiting your view of what they can do. So the authentic assessment um, should be something that is contextualized, requires innovation on the part of the student, requires them to synthesize other pieces. And most importantly, gives you an opportunity to give them feedback for how to improve. Mm -hmm. Not just judgment or evaluation. In fact, the the focus should be on the improvement. And it's really hard to do that on a multiple choice test. Uh, Whereas a performance task or authentic assessment gives you all kinds of opportunities Mm -hmm. with clear criteria for success, described to say okay here's where you're at here's what you've gotten to here's where you need to go next and here's how you get there so then they go back and they add they revise they make whatever they're doing better and then they get a chance to perform again so it's this iterative process with a lot of formative assessment built into it but that's what it needs so a quick example uh we are building a master's in school leadership at Baylor. So the whole program's built around nine performance tasks. Those, anybody that goes through our program is gonna be a distinctively different leader because of the nine performance tasks they go through. Mm -hmm. We haven't designed the syllabus yet for any class. We haven't put anything else of the program together until those performance tasks are done. And so then whoever teaches those classes, those are the tasks that they're going to be feeding into the, their own feedback to help students achieve on those performance tasks. And so they're using improvement science in plan, do, study, act cycles to see how you can take curriculum move forward. So they're very authentic. They're not anything that you can do without a context. I had an email from somebody the other day. It's like, hey, do I have to do the 160 hour internship with this? Absolutely, because you can't do the performance tasks without the context. Right. And so we need to do that for kindergartners. We need to do that for high school students. We need to do that for mm-hmm. undergraduate students and graduate students, but that what the students do should drive our curriculum. And you only get to that through authentic assessment.
0: Yeah, yeah. So my background, uh, so I started a school in the Dominican Republic that was an expeditionary learning school uh, we were one of the first faith-based schools to even try this model. And that was really, that I was, I was looking for a model that really challenged students to, 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 with authentic assessment, give them something to create, give them something to do so that our learning is serving someone outside of our classroom and even someone outside of our school community. So inviting students to do real work, inviting experts into our classroom, you know, and, 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 and asking kids, inviting kids to actually create something. And our students, um, it was pretty cool. I mean, our students created all kinds of things like uh, a botanical garden on our campus. You know, they helped design a an amphitheater. Fifth graders, this was their math and science project. They helped design an amphitheater. Um, but just giving them a real task that they're, because in our real world, when was the last time we took a multiple choice test? I mean, when was that the last when did that measure our knowledge and our skills? No, it's we're create we're constantly at being asked to create something or lead something. So, cool. No, I,
1: Expeditionary learning is perfect for authentic assessment because that's what it's designed around. The thing that I think sometimes will throw off teachers and administrators about EL and similar problem-based or project-based learning Mm -hmm. is that the criteria for success are not clear. So you'll have this cool project. You'll have this great outcome. Like it looks cool, but then what did the individual student learn from that? And it's a little harder to point to. So what I always encourage teachers that are bent this way, some people have to be kind of dragged into this way and other people are like, yes, I wanted school to be like this. Um, to just be clear up front, whether you use a rubric or you just lay out what success looks like to make that really clear up front. What are the yeah. skills and knowledge that you're assessing through the amphitheater project? So, you know, that's a math and science project you lay out clearly, whether you have standards or not. You make it clear, this is what you are going to be responsible for demonstrating knowledge on. We'll have this whole project. The amphitheater is really a huge piece of the assessment, but if you need to know what the kid knows and what the kid contributed, that just needs to be laid out up front so students understand it and they can explain to you what the expectation is back. And that's where I think sometimes I get a little carried away with some of my projects where we'll get these great end things but then I'm still not exactly clear how I really assess the individual student whether it's graduate undergraduate or was my middle school science classroom.
0: So along that same vein talk to me about student-led assessment.
1: Yeah so if we want our students to be, we use this term all the time, lifelong learners, Uh, they have to be assessing where they're at. So it's great, it's it's a good step if teachers can say, hey, here's where you're at and here's where you need to go next. If students can say, here's where I'm at, here's where I think I need to go next, feedback comes in from you or a more advanced peer, and then they go to the next step. That to me is the ideal because that's how we learn. Mm -hmm. I know when I'm trying to learn something new, I don't want a big tutorial at the beginning. I wanna get in, like I'm learning Adobe InDesign and Adobe Illustrator right now. And so I paid a student uh, for one hour of time a month, work-study student. so it really didn't cost me anything. It didn't cost, one one hour on Friday afternoon to come in and look at my projects I'd done so far and give me feedback on what I needed to do to make it better. And she was super patient because I was terrible. That was a couple (laughs) of years ago. So I'm a little better now. I still could use her, but she graduated. Um, So that's to me what we want our students doing, Mm -hmm. working, asking for feedback, improving so they can demonstrate the progress that they've made.
0: That's beautiful. How, how have you seen this student-led assessments implemented well in Christian schools?
1: So the great thing about charter schools to some extent, voucher schools, and then just traditional private schools is a lot of times there's more latitude to just try yeah. stuff out. And so I would say I've seen a wide range of super successful to still figuring it out. And so I think the ones that are super successful have students that when you walk in, and I get to do this now, my favorite thing about being a professor is I get to just go and research places. So we're doing a study right now, of 12 Christian schools around the country. And we're looking at sustainability, accessibility and innovation. And so just hearing them talk about what their students are doing is amazing. And hopefully in the spring, maybe not till the fall, we'll walk into the classrooms and we'll see the students doing the work and talking about what they're doing. I will give one example from New York State. I was doing a study on STEM and how that supports collective leadership. I walked into on Staten Island, um, this school where uh, students were doing Calculus three and there were 34 students in this class doing calculus three. I did not understand what they were doing. (laughs) Um, I could not find the teacher in the room. Uh, The teacher was roaming around, and so were other students, talking through problems, saying, here's where I'm at. What do I need to do next? And it was just it was like there were eight or nine teachers roaming room. I did finally figure out who the teacher was. But just sitting there talking to them about it mm-hmm. was amazing. And at lunch, I walked into a different group of freshmen in high school, and they were in this classroom packed in this old 100-year-old classroom with their lunches for math club. And I was like, so why would you give up your lunch for math club? And the student looked at me like I was kind of an idiot and she said well solving math problems is fun and so she was so motivated that it was like (laughs) duh why wouldn't i be in here doing this so that to me is when learning gets exciting and students see the progress they're making and so that that school was manifesting that and i'm excited to see that in the schools we're studying right now i'm only able to hear about it on zoom but i think when we walk in those classrooms we'll know it and you know as a teacher when you walk in a room and that's there you just it Mm -hmm. it's hard to replicate on a podcast it's hard to do unless you're (laughs) there because you kind of think even if you videotape it you're like oh you're just showing me the group that's doing it but like no you go into some of these rooms and it's like every kid is engaged and thinking and figuring out where they need to go next
0: that's that 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 is where we need to be whether we're a public school or a charter school or christian school that yeah. we empower students to be truly the leader of their own learning, right? I mean that they they know how to make this work. Um, have you seen that work well? So was that a was that a faith based school that you were in in Staten Island?
1: So the the Staten Island one was not. Okay. Um, but I have seen it. We well, Grace has a lot of this good. They're doing teaching for transformation right mm-hmm. now, mm-hmm. and they have teachers making these aha. Uh, moments. I have not been able to get in their classrooms because since they've been in implementation, we've been in coronavirus protocols, but I'm sure that's happening there. I will tell you another example from a second grade classroom. Um, I don't remember if this was a faith-based school or not. Um, I think, you know, in the end, the only difference I think would be the impetus for studying science is like, hey, in a Christian school, it should be because this is the created world around us and we get to study it because there's a creator and in studying creation, we know the creator better, but mm-hmm. the, the, the basic um, takeaways are the same. The thing great teacher. it's a maker space mm-hmm. and the students working uh, with this, these robotic cubelets. And, you know, it's one of those things where I wanted to just pick them up and play with them. Cause you put together these robots with these different cubes, and you can configure them in different ways to make the robots do different things. And so most of the times when I see that happen, second graders are super engaged, but they're not actually articulating what they're thinking mm. because they're just so caught up in the play of it, which isn't even a bad thing, but it misses some of the opportunity to learn. Well, they had, the teachers had so effectively structured this space and so uh, effectively developed their students that as they're doing this, they're supposed to diagram what they're doing and, you know, second grade rudimentary diagram. And then there are some questions that they have to go through and think through. And then they have a space on the other page to process what they're doing. And so it's like, oh, they're not really going to know what that is, or they're not going to, they're going to get so engaged. They're not going to do that because my seventh graders do that all the time. I still do it as an adult, but the student stopped after about 15 minutes and raised her hand. And she said, where do I process this at? Because the notebook wasn't quite set. And and I was like, are you serious? And then the teacher said, oh, it's it's over here. Just flip the page, it's here. And then she proceeded to write in what had happened, what she was doing, uh, and then what she thought should happen next. And I was like, that was a seven-year-old. And so to me, that's where you, wow. you just, I don't know who can't get excited about that, but yeah, that would be, a, that would be a good example of that in person. Um, but I'm certainly seeing it. Um, if, you know, I've had a chance to be in a lot of different Christian schools where that is happening. So that very well could have been uh, a Christian school mm-hmm. example.
0: Are you, are you familiar with celebrations of learning?
1: I don't, I'm not sure that I am. I, that doesn't, I'm not immediately, it's not ringing a bell. So it's, Go ahead.
0: It's, it's an EL term, but it, we we use it at the end of this learning expedition, this learning journey. And it's a time for students to stand up and, and literally share with their parents and their community um, the products that they've created, but also they get they get to share what they've learned and how they've learned it. And they, talking about these, you know, the feedback loop, you know, um, for students to be able to, to bring their different drafts of their writing, uh, their different drafts of their artwork, the different drafts of their math assignments and say, hey, this is where I started and this is where I am now. And this was the process of my learning. And it, it really is, it's, it's a beautiful thing to watch students um, call through their work and be able to decide this is my beautiful work And this is what I'm going to share with my community and 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 show evidence of my learning. So, um, when I I love student led assessments because it 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 drives students to reflect on uh, what have I done well, what am I proud of, and uh, and how did I get there. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So thinking going back to your book that you that you have leading together, um, how do you how do you best see schools? using your book in their school community?
1: So ideally you would have book groups of teachers and administrators talking through the book Um, and it's set up so that you get the basic concepts of collective leadership and then you get this ideal school. Here's what the ideal school would look like. So it it lays that out and then, then you get into the case studies that whether you're a suburban urban or rural school you can just Pick the one you want to tackle. I think there are lessons to be learned from all three, but you can just pick one, kind of choose your own adventure style. And then there's the final chapter where you apply all the different pieces. So there are inventories of questions that you ask, that teachers answer and administrators answer. They literally score the difference between them and then they have to discuss why those differences exist. So, it's to force some hard conversations. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, it requires a lot of vulnerability. But if you're going to get to trust, which we know from research, if there aren't high levels of trust in a school, you're not going to improve significantly. But you don't get trust and then get to be vulnerable. Like you have to force the vulnerability and then handle that well. And then that builds trust. And so, it forces you into that and it gives you templates to have how to think through those pieces, mm-hmm. tools for how to do the work uh and then takes them deeper now that we're at baylor and we're running all of our stuff is collectively led things we kind of wrong foot people sometimes they're they're thinking that they're going to come and they're going to hear some expert talk for 45 minutes to an hour and then they'll go hear the next expert talk it's like nope bring your team, you're going to work on an issue that you have. And we, start, we started identifying common issues and we're trying to put schools together uh, so that Christian schools can lead the way on some of these issues mm-hmm. um, so that you can move, move it together. So after two days, you walk away with a pretty thorough thought exercise that's led to some plan that you then have to present to other people that are in similar kinds of schools that give you feedback. And then you take that not to go back and implement at your school, but to engage the rest of your community. Because I'm super anti getting buy-in, because to me, that makes it sound like you have an idea that you're selling and everybody else has to get on board with, when really collective leadership's about collective expertise. How do you get everyone's best thinking on it so you can move forward. Now you don't need collective leadership for figuring out the bus schedule probably. You don't need it for cafeteria duty. You don't you, you may need some more people other than just you if you're the head of school or principal, but there are certain things especially instructional issues where the more expertise you can get in, the better the solution's going to be. Mm-hmm. So then you're not selling it it's literally a better option. And so we're trying to get people to work through the book that way. Now we're building all of our workshops that way. So they really are that workshops where you're doing work that you can then take back and accelerate the work that you're already doing at school, which has been challenging on virtually, but the great thing about virtual has been, we've been able to pull, you know, well over a thousand school leaders over the last year together to work on redesigning classrooms and schools For environments that we can't imagine and so that's been pretty cool over the last year and so we've used collective leadership for that not because we have all the answers because like you said earlier nobody has all the answers Uh, but collectively we have better answers and so that's what we've been doing.
0: That's awesome. Is this usually like a semester-long process or a year or two years or what what's kind of your recommend your recommendation?
1: In March last year, we started, we had these micro exchanges for a half an hour. Like, hey, we have this topic. Let's tackle this because we don't know what's coming. Mm -hmm. Uh, So in April, those started. And out of that, it came like, hey, we need help with this. Can we do this over the course of a month? So we did month-long engagements to do school redesign in May and June. And then the Mm -hmm leaders there said, hey, we need to focus on classrooms. Can we do something that's really mostly for teachers? Can we do classroom redesign? So we did that in July and had like over 400 teachers enroll in that. So we met once a week for an hour and then they had a lot of work to do in between which they shared and had to share out a plan. So at the end of each of those months, everybody had to present their plan for Mm -hmm. the coming year Mm -hmm. with options. Yeah. Um, because we knew we, we couldn't say with certainty. The only people that were going to be wrong were the people that thought they had it figured out in May <laughs> or June. <laughs> um, make your so, plan and so, hold it yeah, loosely. <laughs> that's it, exactly. And to make multiple plans and hold them all loosely. And so so we saw some really great work happening, not because we at Baylor were saying, hey, here are all the answers. It's like, hey, we're bringing together the smaller, smartest Christian leaders we can mm-hmm. from all over the country, and we're going to do that work as well as we can. And so that's the way it worked this summer. It was going to work in June as a two and a half day come to Baylor mm-hmm. and do this work in teams in yeah. person in this incarnational way. And we're eventually going to do that so that we, we can do that. And then I will say the last thing in July, we heard from our teachers like, hey, we'd love to do this through the course of the year because we know this is gonna be uncertain. This is gonna be hard. And so we've been meeting monthly on Wednesdays, which we've now had to expand into two different hours because we couldn't make East Coast and West Coast all fit together. Uh, So we're doing that each month. Um, for an hour, an hour at a time, where we do give them like 15 or 20 minutes of some good content, some good research to think about around assessment and feedback. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then they actually are working on rubrics, criteria for success this next month, they're bringing feedback they've been giving to students to try to refine that and make that better. And we'll do that through May. Now that has proven to be very hard because they're so tired. Uh, They are so tired. So I cannot believe they get on for another hour of Zoom after either in-person mass teaching or online or a mix of mm-hmm. both, but they've been unbelievably committed. Um, and so it's, it's, we have not had the volume of people we had in the summer, but yeah. to get 400 teachers to do that for a month in July, I thought there's no way teachers after the year they went through, we're going to show up in July for this. But I mean, we had over 400 teachers show up for that, which uh, is incredible kind of shows the commitment that some of these Christian educators have.
0: Well, and I think across the board, people were just, they, they didn't know where to turn. You know, there was just yeah. like this, I don't know what to do. So I am literally searching every possible expert I can, because I need to be ready. I'm, I don't feel ready and I need to get ready. Yeah. So that's good. That's good. So if, but if, if we were in non COVID world, this would typically be something that could be led through on a monthly basis as well?
1: Yeah, so the uh, c- the improvement communities that we've been doing, those started, you know, three years ago, mm-hmm. uh, those are designed for in-person component to launch, then regular check-ins each month with the requirement that a teacher and administrator from each school has to be on, mm-hmm. and you have to record your progress toward the goal that you've laid out in the google spreadsheet so that everybody can see it before the call starts okay so that's the way we've kept traction and those are only half hour calls once a month so they're and they're just quick report out i don't bring any content to that i just facilitate what they're doing and now the schools have some pretty deep relationships with each other because they've been meeting regularly through some pretty tough times it will still we think in January we'll get together face-to-face. The last time we were able to get together face-to-face was last January. We're hoping to do that with a small group, but you know, again, it's hard to plan any of that right now. But ideally it's launch in person, monthly check-ins, check-in at least once a year in person, Mm -hmm. keep that progress going the idea moving forward will be that they have a common problem of practice that they work on the initial ones were just hey we want to get better with other schools and everybody picked their own problem of practice which kind of overlapped but they weren't as coherent as it would be if they picked a common problem of practice that they wanted to work on together so as we move forward at baylor we'll do those two and a half day workshops and then out of that hopefully have schools clumped together that want to do that work moving forward around common common problems that they want to tackle.
0: That's great. Building con- connectivity and creativity. Love it. Um, taking a little tangent, I want to go back to kind of the beginning of your story. What what is your connection to Christian education? How did you get involved yeah. and and why are you still involved? Yeah, so I
1: Went to my my dad was an associate pastor and my junior year of high school, he moved us from Ohio to coal country, West Virginia, like middle of nowhere, a town of 500 people. Um, I went to a very small school. We had a thousand kids in the whole school um, that was very limited for educational opportunity. There were, there were no Christian schools in my town. I mean, no one could afford any, even if it would have been a couple thousand dollars tuition, it was not an option for most people. Um, and I was pretty resentful <laughs> that he moved us there as a junior at me there as a junior in high school, but I really realized I loved teaching. I tutor friends. I would talk them through stuff I enjoyed. And I loved kids. And so I had this calling that I should go into teaching at that point. And so I got a federal scholarship because I looked like Appalachian white poverty. Um, and so I got a three-year scholarship. That's as long the federal program ended after my junior year of college that said I had to teach for two years uh, in public schools uh, as soon as I got out of college. So I had to do six years of service. And that was super helpful for me. I went to Wheaton College and that place was an oasis for me because the integration of faith and learning was just in everything. And so I came to love Christian education through Christian liberal arts at Wheaton college. And I was trained how to teach there. Uh, I had this deep dive liberal arts education because I was going to be a K through nine educator. So at Wheaton, you have to take extra classes and everything so that you know your subject area when you have to be a generalist. And so I, lo- I, be- I think I became a learner in Christian liberal arts education. Mm-hmm. And so I took that with me. Um, I taught in public schools because I-, I had to for the first six years um, and loved it. I mean, I think we need great Christian educators everywhere, but I never was able to really be explicit with my faith and why I did what I did. And so when I got the opportunity after the U.S. Department of Ed., to go back and teach at Wheaton and prepare teachers for whatever context Christ was calling them to, like there's no better place to do that than at a place that's Christian liberal arts and has this integration of faith and learning woven into everything because Mm -hmm. it's the foundation. And so then when the opportunity came to go to Baylor, so I was working with a lot of Christian schools Mm -hmm. at Wheaton around the country because a lot of a lot of Christian schools have some connection back to Wheaton. They have a teacher, they have an administrator, they have a head of school. And so we were doing a lot of work and we placed student teachers in Christian schools and so um, as well as public schools. And then so this opportunity came up at Baylor to support Christians in whatever kinds of schools they're in. That was a a pivot from where Baylor had been traditionally where it had Mm -hmm. served public schools all not exclusively, but that had been the primary focus, and so this mm-hmm. gift made it possible to serve Christians in whatever place that they were in. And so that took the research we were already doing in the work with Christian schools, like the Texas Improvement Community, had already started before I even knew mm-hmm. Baylor was going to have this position. So wow. God was kind of laying out this path, I think. And I gave the talk at CISA. Um, before I knew anything about Baylor and the executive director Matt Thomas at the center was at that conference and <laughs> afterwards he talked to me, and he's he he already kind of started to have the idea that, like this is the guy we want to do this here. And so Tim Weens was at, he's the head of CESA, he was the started CESA, now he's at Mount Perrin. He was on faculty at Wheaton with me and was a good friend. And so I'd started to get some of the organizational aspects of Christian schooling because it's fairly fragmented. Mm -hmm. Um, But then there are these kind of umbrella organizations that brings, you know, ACSI's out there, you you Mm -hmm. know, you know, CASE is doing a lot of good stuff there and CESA does too. So I started to get more of a sense of what would be possible. So so the chance to come down here really pour into Christian schools and Christian leaders and whatever schools they're in was very appealing. So I'd say that's the, that may be a longer answer than you wanted, but that from no, West right? Virginia high school <laughs> to here is how it all uh, came about.
0: That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And it, it's, it's obvious that this is a calling that God has placed on your life. And I love that, that you realize that even as a junior in high school, you know, and now you are training educators. I mean, you are training, you are teaching the teachers and uh, training the next generation. That's beautiful. So you're, you're presenting at our Christian Deeper Learning 4, CDL 4, in a couple of months. Uh, what material, what what can people expect uh, from, from your teaching?
1: Well, when you come, I mean, the facilitators in your school are going to be super helpful because you need to come with assessments you want to work on, Mm -hmm. uh, with things that are as authentic as they can be, and I mean that in several ways, authentic for students, authentic for you, it's not going to be perfect. If you've taught uh, for as long as many of us have, you know nothing's ever perfect, but that's the fun part of teaching. (laughs) You can always make it better, and it might be Really great for one student and not work for another one. And so then you figure out ways to make that work. And so come with things ready to work on. Mm -hmm. I want you to walk away from the end of the session with an assessment you're excited about, not because it's pretty or super polished, but because of what you think students might submit to you. I always say if you're grading assignments that you're not excited about, you need to do something about it. You're the professional in the room. Figure out a way to make that something where students are expressing things that you're excited to see. I want assessments to be a celebration of what students know and are able to do. And so come ready to do that. So we'll lay out how to create those authentic assessments, what they are, what they look like, how to lay out criteria for success, how to give feedback for improvement so that by the time they're done, they're doing things that maybe even you couldn't fully imagine, but you've laid out a scaffold that makes it clear to them for how to get where you think they need to go. And then if they go beyond that, just praise the Lord for that.
0: (laughs) That's awesome. Well, we're excited, uh, to, to, to learn from you in our CDL four and, um, I just want to thank you for joining me on Learning to Serve today. Um, Do you have any parting words of wisdom you want to share with our audience?
1: No, well, thank you for your time. I really appreciate everything that you and Dan and Steven are doing. I I think you know expeditionary learning well. And there I, I wish more of that would permeate the atmosphere. But again, when we start with Christ and that's where we begin there's so much that we can do together. And so I don't think there's a better place to start than with Christian deeper learning.
0: Yeah, that's right. Thank you. And this is so much more of a, um, a movement. I mean, it really is a movement uh, with our schools. I'm uh, really just trying to expand um, what school can be, right? Instead of just perpetuating what it's always been. So mm-hmm. thank you. Hey, thanks for joining us this week. If you enjoyed today's podcast, I invite you to share this with a friend and give us a five-star rating wherever you find your podcasts. I also invite you to visit our website at christiandeeperlearning.org. Check out CDL4, the professional development that is available right now for your school staff. CDL4 offers a great opportunity to explore what deeper learning means for your Christian school. Remember this quote from Howard Hendricks, Christian education is like a bomb with a long fuse. It takes a while to go off.